Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast, now also a video podcast on YouTube. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Be sure to visit our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com, for more great interviews, resources, and articles on the craft and business of writing. Today, I'm pleased to have back on the show a television writer and producer who has worked on shows such as CBS's Zoo and also Ringer, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar. He's also a prolific comic book writer, having written for numerous Superman, Green Lantern, and X-Men titles, and he created the sci-fi western series Copperhead and Noble Causes, both for Image Comics. He is Jay Ferber. We'll get to TV in just a sec, but I wanted to talk about comic books first. Sure. Comic book writers, because I know, again, you have 20 years of experience, your own published titles, Mm -hmm. you've written for the big publishers. Um, Even though you broke in 20 years ago, um, I'm sure you understand the whole landscape of the industry Mm -hmm. in general. How would a a comic book writer, a hungry comic book writer, get a writing job? Um, Or is it better to maybe even get, try to get an original comic book published? How would they do that? Um, and what's the biggest hurdle facing yeah. um, comic book writers, aspiring it's, ones? It's, I think the biggest hurdle for aspiring comic book writers is, I mean, there's kind of two paths you can take. You can try to get hired sure. based on you know where you're writing a script and the publisher will find an artist and, and put the whole thing together. Uh, or you can find an artist on your own for, and the two of you, along with the colorist and whoever else, uh, put together your own comic and then pitch that to a publisher or publish it yourselves. And in that sense, the, the biggest hurdle is finding an artist, is finding someone who's good enough to to do the job and willing to work on spec if you can't afford to pay them out of your own pocket, which is a, the case a lot of times. Uh, uh, so I think that's the... And even among established writers, I'll still... I'll get questions sometimes about, like, how do you find artists? How do you find artists? Because it's... It's hard. I mean, uh, artists, uh, they can afford to be choosy these days. Sure. Um, and uh, and, it, and it does, you know, you can, I can write a comic book in a weekend if I have to. It takes an artist on average a month to draw that comic book. Right. Uh, so it's such a huge, much bigger investment in time on the artist's point, uh, on their side, uh, that that they're much more apprehensive about jumping in and doing something on spec or, or doing something half-assed. Uh, so I think that's the biggest hurdle right now is, is for writers to, is to find an artist. But in terms of how they should, I still think that's the best way to break in, is to find somebody, as hard as it may be, to work on a comic book, comic book with you and, and then just make that comic. Whether you print up 20 copies through some print-on-demand service or you run a Kickstarter, uh, I helped out a couple people when I was at Image. Uh, I would run backup stories sometimes in the pages of my own comics. Oh, so, okay. You know, find some young talent and get them to do five pages, a five-page story or whatever. Sometimes they would use my characters. Other times I would let them just invent their own that they would own. Uh, that's another possible avenue is that if you have a good enough package to see if if, uh, if an existing comic would publish it as a backup. Uh because image comics are usually looking for content. You know, the, the typical page length of an image comic is 28 pages. But not all books have 28 pages of story. Mm. It'll be 20 pages of story. And then they have 8 pages to run sketchbook material or run ads or have letters pages or, or all of the above. Uh, but I think it might be appealing to some of these existing creators to have an additional bunch of pages of content to run. 
and it's it, it could be a win-win uh, for the new person it's getting their work published for the existing person it's having more content in their book uh, whether they get paid or not that's the big question mark usually the profit margins on image books are so slim mm-hmm. uh, that I don't think I was ever able to pay the guys who did that it was just for the exposure sure. and they would get copies of the comic uh, um, but I think that's a, a potential path uh, I think it's as hard as it is, I think it's easier to break in doing your own comic as kind of a grassroots guerrilla style than it is to break in the way I did at Marvel and just you know hit them with ideas until they give you a shot. Right. Uh, just because of the way the landscape is today. Sure. Now, if one were interested in trying to... Like, you've gone through the process. Granted, you were already established. Mm-hmm. And I know for Image especially, if you're established, it's substantially easier to... Yeah. Because you have a track record right. and yes. you have a fan base yes. and these types of things. But if somebody, a new writer, had a package, mm-hmm. how would they go about pitching it to um, Image or some of these other, you know, smaller yeah. company I mean, publishers? The other, all the companies, at least the reputable ones, have submission guidelines on their websites. Sure. Uh, and Image, despite how competitive it is and how tough it is to get in there, they've published many books from people who had no prior work who just submitted a book and you know once it finally got in front of Eric Stevenson or whoever was publisher at the time if it's good enough he'll publish it mm-hmm. uh, and so it is definitely worth a shot of, of submitting a comic to image the old-fashioned way follow their guidelines it's usually you know they want to see a synopsis the most important thing for image is to see at least five sequential pages they just want to read five pages of the book what it will feel like how the dialogue is, how the art is, how the coloring is, all that stuff. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it may be months and months and months before you hear back. You may have to pester them. Uh, but it, it, is, it does happen. It's not uh, like a fairy tale. If, it, if it's good enough, they do publish books from complete unknowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think other companies are like that as well. Uh, and if, if you just have to follow their, their guidelines. Um, and it is worth going to conventions and... and you know, making connections, meeting these editors, meeting other creators at the bar, on the show floor, wherever. Uh, and in a way that's not too calculating or, or manipulative, befriending them, just striking sure. up a conversation. Uh, you know, just I, I think most creators are eager to help, like, the next generation, so to speak, of because of, most of these guys have benefited from someone helping them, Uh and I've opened the door for numerous people who are at Image now uh, and just said, like, yeah, you should submit this. A couple of times I've reached out to Eric Stevenson and said, like, you should take a look at this book. And that may have helped get it in front of him, but it's still up to him whether he publishes or not. Sometimes he has, sometimes he hasn't. Right, right. The, the last time we spoke, um, we talked about how there were a number of different writers and producers who would sort of take on a screenplay or an idea for a you know a pitch for a tv show or Mm -hmm. a a film and sort of adapt it to the comic format because they felt that the comic book marketplace was you know a a great springboard right for a film tv development if you can get that comic book out there Uh, and I, I've heard of actual producers just producing a comic on their own. Yeah, just to have IP. To exactly. Yeah. Um, which, you know, our discussion was not not all uh, 
film television projects are really the the right medium isn't comic right. books, yes. right? Yes. Um, have have you gone through the development process? Because I know you've got a number of your own IPs. Mm -hmm. Have you gone through the development process with a comic property of your own, which actually is a comic book property, longstanding? It's not designed for mm -hmm. film and TV. And what was that like? Yeah, a couple, uh, this is, gosh, it's got to be four years now, I think. It was before Zoo started. It mm -hmm. was a summer before, I got the Zoo job in, I think, September. So this was the summer leading up to that. Uh, I have a comic book called Near Death, and I took that out and pitched that as a show. Uh, and uh, got the attention of uh, Davis Entertainment, who uh, produced The Blacklist. Sure. And uh, uh, I'm blanking on what else they do right now, but The Blacklist is their their big show. Um and so we teamed up on that, and and the it, it was interesting because the initial pitch was uh, well the initial the comic book version is real simple. It's a hitman who gets wounded while he's on a job, has a near death experience. It, when he goes to hell, he glimpses all the people that he's killed, and they're going to torment him. And then he's revived on the operating table and decides to try to balance the scales so that he never has to go back to that bad place. So now he's going to start saving lives instead of taking them. So it's a redemption story. It's an action adventure story. Every week, every issue, there would be a new person in danger that he tries to help. Uh, but when I took it out as a show, I I changed a lot of, of what the comic book was and made it much more of a, of a serialized kind of cable approach where he was still an assassin, he was still going to kill people, but maybe not good people, he would only kill bad people. And it was a very muddied pitch, I have to be honest. Uh, and when I took it to Davis... You know, at the pitch, I would always leave behind a copy of the graphic novel. And after the pitch, you know, a day or two later, Davis called and they were like, you know, we'd like to pursue this, but would you be open to changing your pitch? And, and what do you think about kind of going back to what was in the comic, making it more like that? And I was like, I would love that. I, I only changed it because I didn't, I was, again, in retrospect, I shouldn't have done it in the first place. I was trying to kind of guess what the market would want as opposed to pitching the version I want to do. I've since learned that I'm always going to pitch the version I want. And if no one wants it, that's fine. I'm not going to try to cater it to what people want. Uh, but so we took out a, a, a pitch that was much more like the comic. It still had differences, but it was much more like the comic. And it was to Davis's credit that they saw that in the comic and, and had uh, the the drive to, to encourage me to just go back to the source material. Uh, and we we struck out at the network level and we're about to take it out to like TNT and USA and kind of basic cable when I got the job on Zoo. And so we just had to put everything on hold. Uh, and now that I'm free to develop again, the, the execs that I developed with at Davis have moved on to other places and stuff. So it's kind of, we've I've put near death aside for the time being. But, uh, but that was my only real experience taking out a book that I had developed uh, as a comic, taking it out. To, to develop as a show. That leads to two other questions that I uh, that I just thought of based on what you were saying. The first being um, letting, uh, talking about, or just mentioning at least, mm -hmm. that if people say, well, why didn't you continue developing right. when you got a job at Zoo? Right. Because a lot of writers, unless you're at the producer level or above, you, mm -hmm. you, you cannot develop. Right. It's in your contract. Yes. You have to cut off development, yep. no more development process for you. Yep. Um, so if anybody says, well, why doesn't Jay just keep developing it? Right, it doesn't right. sound right. Well, yeah, you can't. You're you can't. exclusive to that show. Right. Uh, and they want to be able to keep you for a few seasons right. and not have other, yep. your attention divided elsewhere. Yep. Um, but my other 
I guess that wasn't a question. Um, <laughs> it was a clarification. Right. But my question would be, um, through that development process and being an experienced TV writer and an experienced comic book creator and writer, um, what is what are the primary differences? And I think we touched on it before, but maybe we can go over it again. Mm-hmm. What are the primary differences between a comic, the comic book medium and the film TV medium? You know, I know you can't have thought bubbles, obviously, right, right. and narration is generally mm-hmm. looked down upon in television and right. film. You know, it's a weakness it's right. because you can't show it, so mm-hmm. you have to explain it. But what are sort of those things that make it difficult to, to transition a comic to film, TV, a vis- another visual medium, but yeah. a different one? I think, I mean, it's a couple different things. Yeah. Near death would have been fairly easy in terms of budget because it was just an action-adventure comic. Sure. Uh, a lot of comics uh, where what can thrive in the comic book uh medium is is big scope is big visuals crazy ideas because if an artist can dream it they can draw it it, it doesn't cost anymore i mean it may take more time drawing on the page depending on how detailed you are but it it's uh it, it's not like tv where there's an, a special effects budget where you can literally only accomplish so much uh so that's one difference is is taking a like i have another comic book called copperhead that uh is a space western and I had briefly talked to the showrunners of Zoo about developing that as a show. Uh, and I was always reluctant to do it because I said, there's, there's no, we'd have to have a Game of Thrones budget to do this because the comic is so chock full of aliens and, and all different kinds. It's not like a, where there's one species and if we make that one CG model, we can just replicate it over and over. The, the whole premise was it was just all these different kinds of aliens. Uh, and, you know, one of their ideas is like, well... What if it's more humans and only a few aliens and we don't see the aliens that much? And already I was just like, it's it's already watered down. Like, it's not the version I want to do. Right. And I, I don't believe that every comic would make a great TV show. Like, there are things that thrive as comic books. Uh, and, and vice versa. I don't think every TV show would make a great comic. A lot of them would make really boring comics. Uh, but, but to get back to your question, I, I think TV also, especially in this day and age, it was different. 30 years ago but in in this era of television i think a lot of times i think tv has an opportunity to go deeper than uh a comic book does in in terms of of characterization and and nuance and themes uh a lot of that is is because of the quality of acting i think that that actors can bring a lot to that that uh even the best artist couldn't in terms of you know the a subtle change of expression uh but even as I say that, I, I can hear my comic book brethren gritting their teeth at me because there are things that comics can do, as you said, like narration, thought balloons, uh, that, that deepen comic books much more than a, a TV or film can do. So it's it's hard to say which one can do what better, I think. Uh, it's it's more just different and, and realizing that each medium has a different strength Uh and and I think the biggest thing really is what I said earlier is is visuals is is scope and visuals and and things that just can't be accomplished easily on a TV budget right. that you can do relatively easily in comic books right and people will say well what about Avengers what about right. you know all these huge gigantic sure. but there were established IPs right. that have that, a that, huge they're, long they're standing all the exception and and right. it, if if you look at like uh, all those Marvel Netflix shows like. There's not much special effects in there. I mean, there, there's a 
for action sh shows, there's not a lot of action. Uh, and even Daredevil, it's just stunt coordination. Mm -hmm. It's stunt choreography. Uh, it's it's not. That's why they made those shows because they're street level and, and they can kind of do that. Uh, that's why there's not an Avengers show on television because uh, it would be much harder to pull off. Right, right. How has being a comic book writer first mm -hmm. affected your TV opportunities and TV writing positions and that sort of thing? Has it affected it at all? Like, has it helped or has it hindered? Uh, I don't think it's hindered. I, I think it's helped in the sense that it, it gives me uh, an interesting hook in meetings. Uh, I mean, it's getting less interesting by the day because more and more comic book writers are coming to TV. But, but especially when I was starting out, it, it was still like, oh, you write comic books. What's that like? Uh, so there's that. It gives you something. It, it's, it's, it's one of the things that makes me different from all the other writers that I'm competing against. Uh, and it also, it, it's... The other way it's helped is I've met with showrunners who you wouldn't think it, but who turn out to be comic book fans. And they were like, oh, yeah, I read this book. And I, I, you know, I sat down with one guy once who's like, I, I know your name and I think I've read your comics before. And I was like, wow, I had no idea that you even were a comic book guy. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's helped. I mean, it's also helped in terms of doing the job of uh, um, because I came from comics, but I still started in TV kind of on the ground floor. Uh, but I had a leg up because I'd been writing for 15 years at that point and and especially writing in a medium like television that where I can I know how to tell a story visually I know how to think uh like on zoo a lot of times we would really think in terms of starting a scene and especially starting an episode like what is that first image not just what's the first story beat but literally what it, when the screen comes from black what is the first thing we're seeing and then how does that get us into the story and that's something in comic books, I think about all the time in, in every page of, of stuff I'm writing. So in that sense, I think it's helped. Um, do you ever pitch two-page spread <laughs> and splash page? Uh, no, you just yeah. do pullback to right. a wide gotcha. shot. Yeah. Now, uh, I'd like to ask veteran TV writers, mm -hmm. uh, what sort of advice would you have for a new TV writer, like a new, an aspiring writer who books their first job or writers who you know are headed in that direction mm -hmm. for their first job. What would you... What uh, kind well, of well, first of all, I, I, I don't even know that I grant the premise that I'm a veteran TV writer. I still feel brand new myself. Uh, but I'm... Uh, I, I don't know. I've been on five seasons of television. So sure. I guess I'm that, a, that's a veteran. Someone, I'm, I'm what's considered mid-level in television. Uh, but in terms of, of a new writer, I think my biggest piece of advice, you know, you're going to want... And I felt this in most writers when they're the first time they're in a room, you want to prove your worth. You want to prove that the person who hired you made the right decision. So you want to, you know, pitch lots of ideas and, and show that you're contributing. And I would, that's a good instinct, but at the same time, I would fight that and, and concentrate on the quality of your pitches, not the quantity of them. It's okay if an hour goes by and you haven't said anything. Uh, you know, if, if you're the new guy, you are the lowest level in the room. And, and the good thing about that is that you have very, there are very low expectations for you. Uh, I haven't been on a show like this, but I've heard of many shows where the staff writer, literally nothing is expected of them. They're not expected to talk. They're not going to get an episode their first year. They're not expected to pitch. They're just kind of there to soak things up and learn. And, you know, maybe they'll be asked to write, uh, you know, uh, 
a story document or, or pitch in or write on the board and, and hearing that. The shows I've been on, I've been lucky enough that, that staff writers were encouraged to pitch and I got episodes my first year and, and all that stuff. Uh, but it also, it, you can let the more experienced people in the room do the heavy lifting. Uh, and and I, would always, I, I would also caution a new writer to, again, in, in, in deferring to the older folks, the more experienced folks in the room, let them point out flaws in a pitch. Like, it's not your place to, if someone pitches an idea, to say, ah, well, but this wouldn't work because of that. Like, unless you have a dynamite way to to pitch a solution, or or I would even say a solution, to, to take what was just pitched and keep the spirit of it, but tweak it a little bit that corrects whatever flaw you saw, just keep your mouth shut. Let someone else shoot it down. You're there to pitch ideas, not shoot down other people's ideas. Uh but, but those would be my, my two kind of pieces of advice. Would, and, and it's just about, you know, uh, quality over quantity and, and, and just don't shoot down pitches. Uh, right. That, that, that'll come later. <laughs> right. Um, and other than, you know, make sure you're never, ever let you're always the first right. person, yeah. you know, at the office other than maybe the writer's assistant or yep. the writer's PAs or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you had mentioned something because we just did a tour of your mm-hmm. office here. We actually are going to have a video of that. Right. So definitely check the Scripts and Scribe YouTube page because we will definitely have a tour of your office, which is cool. Um, but you had mentioned something which I mm-hmm. thought was interesting that you had heard. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, I, I had heard from a, a showrunner, a successful showrunner, to uh, this person had cautioned new writers against coming in and decorating your office on the first day coming in with a box of photos and posters and knickknacks. Uh, and her reasoning was that it, it can, uh, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but be a little presumptuous. Sure. Like, you know, you're, we don't know if you're, because generally the way writer's contracts work is you get picked up for 20 weeks is it generally the, the, the first option. Uh, and at the end of 20 weeks, which is on a network show, if you start in June, that usually takes you through I think generally like October is usually when, when these things start to happen. Uh, that's when writers can evaluate, when your bosses can evaluate whether they're going to keep you around and renew your option. Uh, and if they don't, you just get let go. Uh, so it may be presumptuous for you to come in and, and decorate your office and settle in on that first day when you may be gone in 20 weeks. Right. Uh, other people on the, on the, the tweet thread where I, where I came across this disagreed with that and said they always decorate on their first day because it shows that you're committed to the show and that you're excited to be there and, and are, are you know happy to spend long hours in your office. Uh, so it's, I see both sides to that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never decorated hugely, I think, my offices. Um, I've taken in you know, a picture of my wife from my desk uh, I think on Starcrossed, I might have had a, a, a one or two posters up, um, but yeah, I'm throwing. Use your judgment. I, right. I, I I don't know whether how much I endorse that or I don't. Right. Are there any other little sort of tidbits like that? Mm-hmm. Interesting mm-hmm. anecdotes. Um, some rooms are very strict about phones. Mm-hmm. Some rooms you're not allowed to have a cell phone in the room. Others you can have your phone in the room, but it's generally understood you're not supposed to be checking your email sure. and, and stuff, uh, um, you know, you'll have breaks for that. But I've, I've seen people, you know, even when the boss is pitching, that, that's the thing. When the showrunner is talking, like, let them talk. Don't interrupt. Don't interject. 
let them talk. Like it's their show, they're there. If they're riffing, whatever, you don't want to disrupt their, their chain of thought. But I've seen people like checking their email and stuff. And that's, uh, I've never, I've never seen it happen where they've been called out on it, but, but you know, I've clocked it. Other people have clocked it and that's kind of a no, no, uh, as well. Uh, so even on shows where if the phones aren't banned from the room, I would still stay off it unless you're on a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially if your showrunner is pitching, you want to be giving that your full attention. Right. Laser focus. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, uh, you've been through staffing season mm-hmm. and that whole process as well as the development side. Yep. What's, what is it like sitting down opposite a showrunner trying to, to get a job on staff? Yeah. Um, it's all showrunners are different. Um, sometimes they're going to talk a lot about the show and ask you what you thought of it and what do you think of it. They're, they're, they're generally going to be briefed ahead of time. They'll know a little bit about your background. Uh, they'll have hopefully read a writing sample of yours. So sometimes they'll have a question about what you wrote. Uh, but, but generally it's, you know, you're going to follow their lead, but at the same time, uh, I'll tell this story. The very first showrunner meeting I went on, I was at the Warner Brothers. I, was, I went to the Warner Brothers program. Uh, and so I got sent on a staffing meeting. We hadn't even finished the program yet. And I'd never been on a staffing meeting before. We hadn't even talked about them in the program. So I, I had no, I, wouldn't, I wasn't prepped. I, wasn't, I had literally no idea what to expect. And so I sat down with this showrunner at a coffee shop. And for one thing, I was late, which is a, he didn't care. I was literally like four minutes late. But I'm one of these early birds, so it, I was drenched in sweat and, you know, hemming and hawing because, God, I got stuck in traffic, and uh, I think he was more amused by it than anything. Um, but I, ever since then, I get there 15 minutes early mm-hmm. and will sit in my car if I have to. Uh, but I, I followed his lead too well in that, you know, he would ask me questions that I would answer them, and then... We ended up just talking about other shows and this and that and, and where he was from. And I never, I didn't sell myself enough. I didn't talk about the show enough. Uh, and, and that was the feedback that was given to, uh, I didn't even have an agent at the time. So he, he reported back to Chris Mack, the head of the Warner Brothers workshop, uh, who said, he's like, yeah, you didn't really seem to have enough to say about the show. And that's what they want to hear. I mean, you're... You're there for two reasons. I mean, generally, you're not going to sit down with a showrunner unless they've already read you. So they already like your writing. Now they want to see you. They want to see, do I want to sit across a table from this person every day for months on end for, you know, eight, ten hours a day? You know, what kind of energy do they have in the room? Uh, So that's like the low hurdle you have to clear. But you also want to show what kind of person you are. Tell them, let them get to know you. Talk about your background. What makes you unique uh and talk about the show and not just in a sense of like oh i really love your show but specifically like what sticks out to you like why do you feel drawn to this particular character is there something in that character's background that speaks to you and your background that gives you a way to relate to this character that maybe no one else in the writer's room has uh i've i've been uh when i had my meeting on zoo it was funny uh I sat down with Josh Applebaum and Jeff Pinkner. And Josh was an EP on Starcrossed. Although I'd only, I had met him like twice because he, he wasn't actively involved in the show. Uh, so I knew him very, very briefly. Uh, and Jeff I didn't know at all. 
And uh, Jeff had worked on Lost with a good friend of mine, Brian Vaughn. So Brian had put a good word in for me with Jeff. And Meredith, my boss from Zoo, or my boss from Starcross, had put a good word in for me with Josh. So I had a very soft landing, and, and I had been briefed by somebody who was like, now Josh, he always asks you, what is your superpower in the room? So be prepared to have an answer for that. It's like, all right, got it, have an answer for that. And then I was briefed that Jeff tends to be kind of quiet and hard to read, so don't let that throw you. You know, Josh is probably gonna do most of the talking. And we went in, Josh never asked me, what my superpower was. <laughs> and Jeff was warm and lovely, and uh, they were both lovely. It, 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 was, uh, it was not good intel that I had. <laughs> but everybody's experience is differently. I mean, right. everybody clicks different with different people. Um, and so you just kind of take the temperature. But what I, I, I've gotten kind of off the point. What I wanted to say was that you have to learn how to steer the conversation a little bit yourself without dominated the conversation but if, if there are things in your past or things about you as a person about your experiences like uh, bad example you're meeting on a cop show and your dad was a cop you want to find a way to bring that up and to talk about what that was like to be raised by a cop and and any anecdotes you have and you may never be asked that question so you have to figure out a way to like i have to work this in regardless of whether i get led there in this conversation so it's it's never going to be going to be quite that obvious but any sort of personal connection you have to the material or, or the world that, that this show inhabits, you want to make it a point to, to communicate that, even if it means bringing it up in a kind of a roundabout way. Uh, that's something that I think is important to, to do in a staffing meeting. Right. And you actually brought up a great, great, uh, 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 well, a question mm -hmm. that uh, I think would really come in handy mm -hmm. for, especially for, and, and something that I don't know if a lot of newer writers know, um, we've spoken to Jeffrey Lieber about it mm -hmm. uh, on the podcast before, and actually uh, more recently, uh, uh, Mickey Fisher. Mm -hmm. um, you, you mentioned what is your superpower in the room? Now we're yeah. not talking about like the mythical, you know, if you were an animal kind of right, thing, right. what animal would you be, or you know, would you be Superman or Batman? Not that kind of superpower. Mm -hmm. But everybody in the writers' room has sort of a different specialty. Right. They they so maybe you could explain first what what is your superpower. Secondly, uh, um, the different superpowers, so to speak, the different right. skill sets in a writers' room. Right. And why it's it's important for everyone to sort of be diverse. Yeah. It, it, it's funny when Meredith uh, told me that Josh would ask me that, and having just worked for her uh, uh, for a year on a show. I said, well, what do you think my superpower is? I was curious what if, if her perception of my superpower was the same as mine. And she said that she thought my superpower was always keeping uh, a clear handle on a character's emotions through the story, which I found incredibly flattering because I never thought of that as my superpower. What I think my superpower is, uh, is when we're breaking a story, stories tend to come together in, in broad shapes they're rarely broken strictly linearly in terms of like here this happens then this happens then this happens it's usually here's where we're starting here's where we want to end it'd be cool if this thing happened in the middle i think i'm good at, at helping get us there at building blocks to okay we have this first thing in the teaser and we know we want to get to our act out at the end of act one i can usually okay well we could do this that gets us here and then if we do this that gets us here uh, I think I'm good at building connective tissue between big beats. Uh, I also think I'm good with emotions, so there's two powers that I have. I'm uh, the multiple man. There you um, go. <laughs> uh, but uh, but there's all kinds of... 
some writers are great at pitching, at, at coming in with uh, lots of ideas, just, just can just pitch ideas all day long. Uh, and, and even there's like a, even a subset of that, like some of those ideas are just big moments. Uh, you know, it'd be cool if, if this happened or if we did a thing like this. Other writers are much better at pitching emotions and, and things that it'd be, I'd like to see this character deal with this emotional crisis or whatever. And it's always going to be externalized with a story, but at, but at, at finding good ways to explore a character, that's another superpower. Uh, other, some writers are great at writing outlines that, that they can write like a really bulletproof outline that's concise, but still tells you everything you need to know uh, so that the network isn't going to give you a ton of notes. Uh, other writers are just great writers where they may not say a lot in the room. They may not come in with huge pitches, but once the story's broken and they sit down, they can write a killer script. Uh, some writers are great at writing, at, at mimicking another writer's voice. Uh, and depending on your showrunner, that can be hugely important or not important at all. On Zoo, it wasn't really important. We were encouraged to uh, have our own voices in the scripts. So Zoo scripts tended to look fairly different. I mean, they were all formatted the same, sure. but, but the voice and the cadence, not, not the dialogue. The dialogue you always want to be consistent, but just the way action was written and, and stuff tended to vary depending on who was writing the script. Other shows, the showrunner really wants you to mimic his or her voice as much as you can so that all the scripts really feel like they were written by the same person. And there are writers who were fantastic at that, at just immediately being able to mimic uh, that showrunner's voice. Uh, so that's a power. Uh, some writers are great on set. I've heard of shows, and this has never happened to me, but I've heard of shows, you know, when they shoot out of town uh, or even on, in town where one writer is just kind of set sent to set for essentially the whole season. And they're rarely in the room. They're just there because they're great at set. They're great at helping put out fires and adjusting dialogue to fit, you know, uh, a question an actor might have or, to, or to, because of the layout of a scene. Sometimes you have to adjust dialogue and, and some writers are great at that. Um, so it's just all little building blocks. Some writers are just pleasant to be around. And, and uh, you know, they may have abilities in all those areas but they're also just like a good energy they're good at keeping the room flowing and 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 keeping people's spirits high uh so it's it's all of those things i mean i, I don't think i'd ever point to that as a seller i would never say that to a showrunner right like, i can't really do anything but, <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm fun yeah, people uh, like yeah, me. yeah yeah no, that, that's, uh, i would never use that as a selling point but it, it but there are people who that is uh, that is true um matt pitts uh who has been on your show and is a, a good friend of mine is great at pitching uh, like act out moments uh, and it got to be the point where we would mock him in the room because he would pitch these moments where he wouldn't even know what they meant but it was like oh like I want to find out what that ha like uh, I may have relayed this to you in, um, in the last time we spoke I don't remember we were dealing with on an episode of Zoo and, and we were having something and I forget how he even got there but we were having it came out to where there was going to be blood rain Blood was going to be raining from the sky. And the way into that, Matt pitched that. And he said, like, it'd be cool if they're driving along and wet stuff starts hitting their windshield. And they're like, what the hell is that? And they get out and Jackson looks up and says, that's not rain. Act out. And we're all like, that's awesome. Like, what is it? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. Like, right. But he, he pitches those moments that are, 
And it, and it even after he he didn't come back uh, for season three, he took another job. But we would still like, oh, I got a Pitts moment for you. I'm gonna here's this is oh, that's what Pitts would say. And it was it, we were teasing him, but it was also true. Like he could pitch these great sort of juicy genre moments that we would then all collectively kind of fill and and prop up uh, so that they would work. Uh, but but he was fantastic at that. Which is funny when you mention what Pitts's. Uh, uh... Uh, superpower was mm-hmm. and you would mention like your own superpower how you view it versus mm-hmm. the showrunners you've worked for yeah. how they view your superpower and they're, yep. they're different uh, not to say that you can't be good at both sure, but yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. view your primary right. This, right. your biggest asset is right. this and you view it as something different um, because talking to Trey Calloway who's another mm-hmm. showrunner who's been on the podcast um, he loves working with Matt and he told me what he thought Matt's yeah. superpower was and I believe it was something like Matt doesn't have to, he doesn't pitch a ton of ideas. Right. But he will sit there and take everything in. Mm-hmm. And that moment when you're stuck on something, when you're having, you can't break this, there's a problem or something, yep. he will just blurt out the answer. Yeah. Like it's nothing. Yeah. He's the one who fixes everything. He's yep. not pitching a thousand ideas. Yep. But when he has that, that fix, yeah. you know, when there's a problem, he will fix it. And, yep. and he thought that that was Matt's superpower. So yeah. it's interesting to see how different people look at his. Or maybe he obviously he has multiple skills. Yeah, yeah. But he, he's 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 all around a yeah. great writer and great in the room. But it's it's interesting yeah. to see how different people sure. view your biggest asset yes. yep. as different. Yep. So, um, I guess ask people. Don't just yes. assume what your superpowers, yes. but ask other people yes. who know you. Yeah. Um, but that's very cool. That's yep. that's great to know. Um, Welcome to another episode of the Matt Pitts Show. Right. <laughs> we're always uh, talking about Matt Pitts. We're gonna yes, Matt. This would be his favorite thing ever. <laughs> Um, hi Matt if you're watching um, okay now how did you land your first agent or manager uh, let's see it's, it's because they don't they don't exist in, for comic book writers generally speaking sort of I, I, I got my first manager at Circle of Confusion mm-hmm. when I was just a comic book writer right I, but and, they didn't try to book you for comic book work it was right, for right. film it was, TV it was to represent me in, in film and TV right. to repre- not, I take that back not to represent me to represent my books because I okay. was living in Seattle at the time I, I was not trying to, uh, to, to to be a screenwriter but he was I, I engaged uh, Kemper to uh, represent my books and try to get them optioned and, and stuff uh and then when I moved to L.A., when I got into the Warner Brothers program, I sell out of Kemper. And then uh, because I went through the Warner Brothers program, towards the end of that program, they would put us, they would send us out for meetings with various agents that they were friendly with. Uh, so I met with like three different agents uh, for potential representation. And, uh, you know, I just decided, I mean, they all wanted, because I think, it, I'm trying to think at that point, I think I had a job. Uh, I'd already gotten Ringer. Which is what it, every agent wants. They want somebody who already has a job. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, I met with three different agents and just kind of picked which one that I liked and clicked with best. And and Kemper came with me in all these meetings to, so I can get his kind of input. Uh, and then, so I had uh, agents at ICM for a few years, and then Kemper ended up leaving uh, management life. He, he's now a, a great author. He's a novelist. Um, and. I was without a manager for a few years and then decided that I think I could benefit from one. So I, uh, at that point, it kind of reversed. And my agents then set me up with a couple managers that they liked. And I had meetings with them and they all liked me and wanted to work with me. And then it was again up to me to decide which one I really wanted to, to form a, a relationship with. 
And I'm now with Ilana Berry, who, it's funny, when I met her, she had just left Anonymous, I believe, and wasn't sure where she was going to land next. And I said, like, I want to work with you. And she's like, okay, great. Well, I can tell you I'm at Circle of Confusion. <laughs> so I wound up, it is a circle. I wound up back at Circle of Confusion. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, now let's talk a little bit about TV. Mm-hmm. Um, you did, uh, we're Facebook friends. Yeah. You did that uh, 10 best TV shows, although... 10 favorite TV 10 shows. 10 favorite TV shows. 10, 10 favorite TV shows. Although I do have to say, you sort mm-hmm. of cheated... And I think there must have been like 57 <laughs> different No, I think favorites. I did 20. The 20, okay. Yeah. I'm exaggerating. Yes. Uh, for humor. Yes. Um, but we'll give it to you because there were, you know, some really good shows. There's, there's, it's uh, undisputed. It's hard yes. to pick 10. Yes, right? exactly. Um, but, like, if you could only pick shows that are airing right now, mm-hmm. what are some of your favorites that could potentially be all-time greats? Uh, boy. This is the question, and... and Folks who listen to this and, and who go on to have a job in this industry, uh, this is the question that always flummoxes me when I go on meetings. Because mm. a lot of times in meetings, you'll get asked, like, what are you watching these days? Right. And I'm just like, uh, like, I immediately blank, like, uh, Rockford Files. Like, it's it just <laughs> like, what, like, what they mean, what are you watching now? Right. And it's gotten to the point where before a meeting, I will write out a list just because the act of writing it helps me focus on, on, okay, what am I actually, what are the current shows that I'm watching? Uh and so I'm having to do that now mentally. Um, uh, so Rockford Files? Though, yeah, yeah, totally. It's always <laughs> Rockford Files. Um, uh, the Good Fight, which is technically not currently airing. They finished, but it's, it's, a, it's a current show. Sure. The Good Fight, I was a huge fan of The Good Wife, and The Good Fight, I, I just love. It's, 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 um, it's funny, it's smart, it's, it's a, a, a nice hybrid of, it's kind of a procedural, because there's usually some kind of case of the week, but it's got nice season-long arcs as well, and the, the acting is incredible. Um, uh, so The Good Fight, I really love. Uh, Bosch on Amazon is another one of my favorites. I just, I think it's a great, just sort of layered, very slow, uh, meticulous uh, police show. Um, boy, what else? Uh, Glow, my wife and I just burned through Glow in like, I think, two nights, maybe three. Uh, and I just love it. I, I wish there was more right now. Um, Ah, uh, boy, what else am I watching? Because um, we're kind of, you know, everything's wrapped up for the season in terms of network stuff. Um, uh, I tended to watch, I didn't watch every episode, but I watched a lot of SWAT. Uh, mm. I just like, it's just a good old-fashioned run-and-jump police show. Uh, um and I am a, an old school cop fan. Um, I was you mentioned Mickey Fisher earlier. Uh, Reverie, I enjoy. Mm-hmm. I think I'm like two episodes behind on that, but I think that's just a brilliant uh, uh, way to do a a quantum leap or a, a fantasy island or, or just this show that's sort of an anthology with a different world each week. But you've got this protagonist uh, with her own kind of arc and mythology, and I, I just think it's super smart. Um, what else? Oh, another one, um, Sneaky Pete on Amazon Ooh. is another one that I love. Uh, and it's by a lot of the same guys who do Justified. And I feel like not enough people pay attention to Sneaky Pete, but you should. It's it's just great little right. smart crime writing. Anything with Giovanni Ribisi, too. Yeah, he's great. He's, he's fantastic. And, yeah. and the first season had Brian Cranston oh, yeah. in almost every episode. And there was one of them, I forget which episode, but he gave this monologue in a single take that had to last over five minutes, him recounting the story from his youth that it was in just 
great writing and great acting. Uh, boy, what else? The Deuce, uh, hmm. HBO, Game of Thrones, of course. Um, I know there's more that I'm forgetting, but uh, those are the high points right now, I yeah. think, of what I can think of. Yeah, I'm sure there's stuff I'm forgetting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll just say, I'll just add on Rockford Files. Sure. It's yes. all good to go. Um, now, we've seen your shrines to Greatest mm-hmm. American Hero and Magnum P.I. Yes. Um, and both of those shows are being rebooted. They're being remade. Well, one of them is. Greatest what? American Hero is dead. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately. I think, I mean, it's, it's I don't know if it's a thousand percent dead, but I, I think it's, it, it it's did not, not it did not go at ABC. I think they would try to find another home for it but, and mm. couldn't. Uh, and then I, they might, I don't know if they might try to redevelop it. I'm not sure, but I, I believe that the version that was shot is, is not happening. Okay. Um, now, but basically, what are your, being f- fan mm-hmm. of a lifelong fan of those shows. Yeah. What's your sort of take on the remaking of classic television shows? It's interesting. I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, on one hand, I get it. It's, it's, there's so many shows out there right now on so many devices and services and networks and streaming right. that you're looking for anything to cut through the clutter. Anything... Uh, and, and one way to do that is to have a brand name attached to it. A MacGyver. So I, uh, yeah, exactly. Hawaii Hawaii 50, 50, oh, yes, right. yes, all that. Gotcha. So I, I, I totally get that, uh, that, that that makes it appealing to, to, to do this. Um, and I think for me, the, the key is to just, as a fan of those things, is how much of the heart is retained in that when, when you reboot it. Uh, um, and I think the Magnum PI uh, reboot, I think, is going to be terrific. Uh, I read the pilot, and it's it's great. It, it's obvious that uh, Peter Lankov and Eric Guggenheim are, are fans of the original, and uh, uh, and it shows. And I think it's a smart updating on it. Um, it doesn't. It'll never replace the original. Uh, like I know people who are going to not watch it out of principle because how dare they? Or you know they should have Tom Selleck involved. And I, I get all that. I. I'm a huge fan of the original, and I will still watch that. And this, there's no way that the new one will ever replace that in in uh, in, in my own ranking. Uh, but but I, I I guess my feeling is like if you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. Like it, n- n- nothing comes with a gun that's going to come pointed at your head that you have to watch it. I remember uh, years ago reading about some comic book reboot, and I remember some fans saying. Like, I am dreading when that book comes out. I was like, why are you dreading it? Just don't <laughs> right. read it. Right. Like, if, if it's not something that seems appealing to you, don't read it. Don't watch it. Don't go see it. Like, just because we're nerds and we're into this stuff, like, I mean, I'll be honest. The Greatest American Hero reboot was not my thing. I, I, I have a pretty strict vision of what that show should and should be and is, I think. And a half-hour comedy is not that. I wish them success. My manager is represents uh, some of the people involved in it, and uh, so I had it gone. I would have wished them success. I'm not happy it failed, but I probably wouldn't have watched it, it just because it's not quite for me. Doesn't mean it shouldn't exist, but that's just you know we vote with our with our eyeballs and with our dollars. I guess sure. um, I know that uh, I think 
last year's development cycle, uh, John Rogers took a crack at Magnum where it was going to be a continuation where there was, because in the final episode of Magnum, he has a daughter. She was like four or five at the time. And so this show was going to be about her growing up as a private detective in Hawaii. And I thought that would have been an interesting take where it, it's connected to the original as opposed to just literally rebooting it. Um, but I get it. I mean, it, it, who, I, I, I never read it. I don't know how it was. I, I think John's a great writer. I'm sure it was awesome. I was really excited to see it. Um, uh, we'll never know whether it would have been more successful than this clean reboot uh, or not. But I, I don't fault them for doing it. Right, right. Um, what classic show out there, you know, in the past, mm-hmm. that, that's one of your favorites, do you, would you love to say, hey, Jay, right. what, do you, what, what would you like to reboot? We want to do, do a remake of something with the success of SWAT, with the mm-hmm. success of, you know, all these other remakes. We want to do one and, you know, we think you're the guy to do it. What, what would you pick? Probably, boy. It's interesting because I'm giving this a lot of thought. Probably too much. Um, <laughs> Probably Spencer for Hire. Uh, you know, it was, a th- it was on three seasons in the 80s. Robert Urich, Avery Brooks. It's based on a series of novels that are still being written. The, uh, Robert Parker, the original author, has passed away. But the novels are being continued uh, by a guy named Ace Atkins, who's a great writer and really captures that voice. So it's, it's a property that still has a fan base. Uh, it was a pretty popular TV show. I mean, everybody remembers Hawk. Um, they just announced Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg are doing a feature film version of Spencer. So a TV version will not happen anytime soon. Uh, but they tried to do the with the MacGyver thing. The MacGyver with Screen Gems and the TV show. On right. CBS. So, That's true. Uh, That's maybe, true. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe. It might. I, yeah. I doubt it. It's, it's not probably something not. I'm chasing. Right. Uh, but it, it, it's... I picked Spencer. There were other shows. I mean, I'm a huge fan, as we said, of The Rockford Files. But I think that show would be really, really hard to reboot. Um because, number one, James Garner is irreplaceable. I mean, so is Tom Selleck, but CBS, I think they might pull it off. Uh, but also Rockford, so much, like, television has changed since those days in the sense that Rockford, James Garner was in almost every scene of every episode. And that's unheard of today. You're not going to find an actor who would be willing or even able to do that. You would you would kill someone to, to have them be in every scene of a right. show. I mean, they'd be working 14, 15-hour days, five days a week. Like, it, it just... And so you would have to really change what what Rockford is and make it more of some kind of ensemble show, give him more characters that, you know, you can follow uh, doing stuff on their own. Because even though Rockford had Rocky and Angel and... and they always appeared with Rockford. He was still in all those scenes. So you would need to find ways to write him out of scenes, uh, which is why the original MacGyver was all MacGyver. But the new one, he has colleagues that, right. that can carry story and stuff for that exact same reason, I'm sure. Uh, but whereas Spencer, I think you could do because you could split time with Spencer and Hawk and other characters. Uh, so yeah, Spencer is my answer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um and I guess, sort of, lastly, let's tie, we can tie it up with um, just the general advice for writers out there, whether they be comic book writers mm-hmm. or, or you know screenwriters, TV writers, who uh, you know, just general advice for them on right. on getting their career, um, you know, for their career. I yeah, I think it's just a matter of of. 
perseverance of, of really, like, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, it, it's, you know, even though I broke in at Marvel, it, it, was, it took years of, of sending pitches out to editors of, of, of just trying. And this was before emails. I was, like, mailing them through the mail uh, uh, of just, like, what about a miniseries with this character? Uh, and it, it, it's, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a long time. Um, and, you know, with comics, the first thing you write even if you find an artist to help produce it and you get it out there, like that first comic probably won't be your ticket to getting a job at Marvel in DC. It's, it's going to be an ongoing process. Um, I, I, so I, and, and TV is the same way that, that the first script you write is probably not going to be a script that's going to get you an agent or a manager or a job. Um, but I think the, the, the great thing about the internet being what it is today is that it brings us together and then it, there is a great opportunity for writers in both genres in all genres to find each other and and prop each other up so some like writers groups uh i think are a big thing uh you know surround yourself with writers who are you know similar to you in terms of ability or or where they're at in their careers or whatever and, and swap scripts give each other notes support each other uh you know, I, I have the same thing now, even where I'm at with my career. Every time I write a new pilot, uh, I send it to a couple of different writers that I've met on various shows that I'm friends with who I trust their input. And I they're my first read, even before my manager or my agents. Like, I get their input first. Uh, so find... And I was the same way in comics, that I, I made friends as I was breaking in and, and coming up to the ranks and, and those are people who I'm, that's where I met Brian Vaughn. I met him 20 years ago when we were both breaking in at Marvel. Uh, and, and these relationships can last and you can help each other grow, uh, and both grow as writers and grow in your careers. Uh, so I would just like use the internet, use those resources to just seek out other writers. Twitter's great for that. And speaking of Twitter, you can follow Jay on Twitter yes. at Jay Ferber. It's yep. J-A-Y-F-A-E-R-B-E-R. Yes. Jay Ferber. Um, he also has a website. Yes, which is, this is almost never updated, but it's jayferber.com. Yes. Well, maybe he'll update it. Maybe I will. <laughs> maybe one day. You, but, so, but you can, you can down, I have some scripts up there, uh, comic book scripts. I don't think I have any TV scripts. But right. if you're interested in seeing how these things are formatted Absolutely. or whatever. Well, and that's the thing. We've talked to a number of com comic book writers. Unlike... TV and film scripts, which are definitely formatted in a yes. specific rigid way, yes. uh, comic book scripts are all individual to the, yeah, yeah. the writer There's themselves. Almost no two look alike. Right. Uh, and, there, and so it's, it, that's both helpful and can be overwhelming to new writers, I think, because you're sure. like, you just want to know, how do I do this? And the right. answer is, however, pick, you, however you want. want right. your, your only goal is to communicate your story to an artist. Right. Uh, and so my scripts will even change depending on the artist that I'm working with. Uh -oh. Some are more detailed, some are less. Uh, but but it's really however you can communicate your ideas. But right. if you want just a starting point, you could look on my website. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen some with pictures. They'll add pictures and yeah, all yeah. kinds of stuff. You yep. know, that'd make it easier for that writer. Um, and he has a Facebook fan page. Yes. So again, Jay Ferber, F A E R B E R. Uh, first name is J J A Y. Yes. Um, and again, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com, for more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing. Thank you, Jay. It's thank always you. a pleasure. Yeah. Um, and thank you guys all for watching, listening. Thanks, Have a good one. We'll see you next time. Taking over the universe when I'm using words. Every time I do the work, I be leaving them stupid hurt. You was right, I'm going crazy when I do the verse, but it do not matter. Matt Hatter, I'm feeling like